This is the Pastor Podcast with Randy and Andy. Andy Payton is the lead pastor at Methodist Temple United Methodist Church in Evansville, Indiana. Randy Moore is associate pastor at Methodist Temple. Their goal is to see Christ in everything and everyone. Greetings, everyone. I'm Randy Moore. And I'm Andy Payton. Good to be with you again this week, Andy, and good to have you with us to, to listen in on our conversation. And normally what we would be doing is we'd be taking the text from last week's sermon and looking at the text in the sermon and, and, and reviewing it and breaking it down and expanding on it, uh, and then looking ahead to next week's sermon. But what you've done, Andy, is you've chosen to do a 25-part series on the articles of religion. So we're not necessarily in the lectionary, and so I just wanted to say that so people know, and let's let people know what those 25 articles are briefly, since we're deep into them. Yes. um, Well, the 25 articles of religion that we're using are the ones that have been given to the Methodist from John Wesley. They were his own re-edition or reapplication of the Articles of Religion from the Anglican Church. And the the way that I'm approaching them, the way we are approaching them is we're not saying that what we offer is the final word when it comes to these documents, but we're trying to see them through the lens of how can they teach us about our relationship with God today? And so we're applying them in such a way where they're like guardrails that give shape to our experience of God and how to be able to share that and articulate that experience to God to others. You said this in one of our conversations together. You said that we are theologians. I mean, we are. We're, we're called to be you know, theologians, theology, words about God, thoughts about God. But we are pastoral theologians. We're pastors. Uh, we have this, what we would call a flock. Sometimes that's not a very nice term, but you, you understand what we mean. I mean, we are responsible for people, and we want to be a pastor to people because when you when you pull out these 25 articles of religion, all of a sudden it can get very theological and very almost egg-heady. So we're going to try to keep each other in yeah. line, right? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Uh, yeah. The, the real temptation with these articles is to get kind of bogged down in the weeds and the details. And every week I've worked on one of these articles, it's really hard to distill it down into something that's practical uh, for the everyday person that's simply coming to worship and trying to be a part of the church and wondering, how do I relate to God today? And so the challenge is not to get off on a rabbit trail, but to try to apply these in practical ways. Yeah. So if you're listening, hang in there. We'll get to that pastoral aspect. Um, And before we start, though, it is our practice now, uh, borrowing from an instruction from John Wesley himself, and to ask each other about the condition of our souls. And so, Andy, how is it with your soul? How is it? Um, So... I was thinking about that question because I knew I was going to have to ask uh, answer that question today. Um, I think it would be fair to say that today my school, my soul is scattered. Um, every once in a while, we all get into that situation where we find ourselves spinning a lot of different plates. And uh, on this Wednesday of this particular week, I find that I'm spinning a lot of different plates. I'm working on a sermon for this upcoming week. And then I'm thinking about a podcast today, thinking about what's going to be happening at home tonight and what's coming up this week and all those sorts of things. And so, well, I just have a lot spinning on, uh, spinning within me today. Okay. 
My soul this week is, um, it, I'm looking forward to this weekend. Um, my soul is generally fed by all the activity that I'm in, involved with, with the church and, and with my other activities in my, in my family life, in my life with my wife. But Lisa and I are going to take a three-day weekend this weekend. I won't be in church this weekend. Every year, it's been our habit for about five or six years, we, we go to a St. Louis Cardinals game and we go to the Hill and we have dinner. And um, I'm looking forward to that because that's the... That's the restoration of the soul. That's, that's the reason why John Wesley asked that question. And when a church asks that question, it means that if, if they're asking about the condition of their soul, what's behind that is your soul might be in trouble if you're a pastor because you may be overburdened and on the point of burnout. So it's always good, even though we are fed by what we do in the interaction with each other and with our people, it's good to get away from it for a day or two or three. Oh, absolutely. And, and as you were talking, Randy, I was thinking to myself, like, I wonder if the number one commandment that we break is remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Uh, that's true for pastors, but I think it's true for a lot of people today um, in the sense that we get scattered and so busy that we don't take a moment to take a break, a rest, reconnect, recenter. And uh, our lives show it in our society today, for sure. Mm-hmm. All right. Let's dig in. I'm going to go ahead and read this article uh, that you dealt with last Sunday. It's Article 6. It's of the Old Testament. The Old Testament is not contrary to the New, for both in the Old and New Testament, everlasting life is offered to mankind by Christ, who is the only mediator between God and man, being both God and man. Wherefore, they are not to be heard who feign that the old fathers did look only for transitory promises, although the law given from God by Moses as touching ceremonies of rites doth not bind Christians, nor ought the civil precepts thereof necessity be received in any commonwealth. Yet notwithstanding, no Christian whatsoever is free from the obedience of the commandments which are called moral." And so, Andy, you really focused, and a focus is absolutely a requirement because every word, every phrase could be another sermon. And so, in your message, you you focused on this phrase that Christ is the only mediator between God and man. And so, I thought I might just have a few introductory remarks about what the Old Testament is. I think if we're not careful, and some of our people can think, well, if it's the old and the new is the new, then the old is no longer applicable um, and because something new has come along. Yeah, I mean, over the years, I've heard people even say it this way. Um, they don't believe in the God of the Old Testament. Instead, they believe in the God of the New Testament. And if you followed this paragraph from our articles of religion closely, you would you would have to understand that's just not true. Um, our, our faith has been, it's the same God. The God of the old is the same as the God of the new. And so we can't just do away with essentially, I'm going to say two-thirds of the Bible, maybe three-fourths of our Bible. Right. Uh, the Old Testament is Holy Scripture to us. It is in our, it is in our canon. But we should not take that for granted. Um, th- there was a bishop in the, in the second century by the name of Marcion, and uh, he thought the God of the Old Testament was a different God from the God of the New Testament. He essentially recommended eliminating the Old Testament and then severely editing the New Testament. And so we almost, as Christians as Christianity almost went down that path, but the Christians said, no, 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 no. This is our book. And so uh, I wanted to share a couple of things that Jesus said uh, to make this point, because 
the Hebrew Scriptures, our Old Testament, that was Jesus's Bible. And in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, it's a famous quote, but Jesus himself said, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've come not to abolish, but to fulfill. Amen, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away. Not the smallest letter or the smallest part of the letter will pass from the law until all things have taken place. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do so will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever obeys and teaches these commandments will be called greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, of course, Matthew of the four uh, gospel writers is stronger on this possibly than the others, but he goes on into an area of the Sermon on the Mount that's called the antitheses. That word itself makes it sound like God is anti-law, but that's not what's going on there. Jesus is actually making the law stricter. He's absolutely making the law stricter. He says, you have heard it said, do not murder. I say, if you even think about, uh, if you even get angry, you've committed murder. That's called building a fence around the law. Jesus is, in effect, saying, don't come within 100 miles of breaking the law. Yeah, he, Jesus in these commandments that you're mentioning, these verses that you're mentioning, Randy, I, I would say he is intensifying yeah. what is said in the Hebrew Scriptures. And so he's not going against it. He's just saying, well, this is what it means to become more intense in our following of these commandments and, and really this way of life. Yeah. And then um, what he's asking about what the greatest commandment is, you know, another famous saying, he, he essentially says it comes down to loving God and then loving your neighbor. But that itself, he pulls out of the Old Testament. He combines Deuteronomy and Leviticus. And so there's Jesus himself drawing on the Old Testament. And so uh, Jesus was a Jew. The first Christians were a Jew. The New Testament is very much a Jewish book itself. And so and there's continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Absolutely. It's a, the New Testament, in some ways, is like a, a commentary on the Hebrew Scriptures. It's an application. It's a way of, of looking at the, at the Hebrew Scriptures. And to think that they were, well, just, just to think that the early Christians thought of themselves as starting a new religion is just not accurate because they saw themselves as living faithfully for the Jewish God that we call the Old Testament, the, the God that we see in the Old Testament. Jesus was Jewish. As you said, Paul is Jewish. Uh, in the Bible and the New Testament, they're, they're going to the temple. They're going to synagogues. These are Jewish people living out a Jewish life. I want to read a paragraph from Amy Jill Levine. She wrote an essay about the Christian use of the Hebrew Bible in, in the uh, Jewish Study Bible. And we've used Amy Jill Levine in a lot of studies here at Methodist Temple. Amy Jill Levine is actually a Jew who teaches New Testament at, uh, at Vanderbilt. And in the afterword in this essay, she writes this. She says, literary texts require interpretation. Each community and each reader sees new things in ancient writings. For the Christian church, traditionally, Jesus is present throughout the pages of the Old Testament. For the Jewish community, he is absent from the Hebrew Bible. This is not a matter of who reads correctly as if biblical interpretation is a zero-sum game. Many Christians following the New Testament will see Jesus in the scriptures of Israel, just as many Jews will read those same scriptures in light of Midrashic commentaries. 
Whereas today, church and synagogue see the shared materials through different lenses, in different canonical orders, in different languages, and with different emphases, these differences should not be the basis of polemic concerning who is reading the text correctly. Rather, they point to the richness of the text, of traditions that hold them to be sacred, and of the human imagination. Amy Levine, so, so good. I mean, amen. I don't know what yeah. else to add to what she wrote there, but yeah, that, that says it quite perfectly in terms of what a Christian approach to the Hebrew Scriptures would be or a, a Jewish approach to the Hebrew Scriptures would be today. All right. So with that as an introduction, um, let's take a look at your sermon from last week because, as we said, there's a lot there, and uh, anytime we embark on uh, tackling something that large, you got to break it down, find a, find a more narrow focus. And so, you really uh, zoned in on the, the line that says Christ is the only mediator between God and man. And so how do we see uh, Jesus then? And you drew uh, three big camps uh, to tackle that and to take that focus. And the first one you called the ex- exclusivistic uh, camp. You want to explain? Yeah, the exclusivistic camp, I started with that one. Um, another way to describe this group would be the absolutist camp when it comes to religion is the one that I think many Christians um, have been exposed to, most prevalently at least, and that says basically that, in the sense for Christian religion, is the only way to God. Um, And so when the exclusivistic person hears that language that Jesus is the only mediator between God and humanity, um, they interpret that to say, he's the only way to God. Jesus is the only way to God. Christianity is the only way to God, and thus also the the only way to to heaven and so that's the exclusivistic approach um, to religion mm-hmm. and to go right to the verse you know the proof text on that you go to John fourteen six Jesus said to him I am the way and the truth and the life no one comes to the Father except through me yeah I mean that is a verse that gets thrown around a lot when it when it comes to the exclusivistic camp absolutely and. You know, taking it at face value, that verse cer- certainly seems to point in that direction. But um, maybe a way to think about that verse that would broaden our understanding of what it could mean would suggest that, like, well, let's just take that verse at face value. Jesus is the way, the truth, and life, and no one comes unto God except through him. The key to understand that verse is, like, well, if that's true, then, then Jesus is the one that makes the call. We are not the ones that make the call. And therefore, Jesus is the one that also sets the criteria about who's going to enter into God's presence or not as well. Mm-hmm. And so the reason I even, I even throw that alternative approach to the Scripture out is that there is more than one way to look at a passage of Scripture. And certainly, I'm just offering another way to look at that verse. Yeah, and you provided an alternative from John uh, himself. I mean, that came from John, but then... In 1334, the Gospel of John, Jesus says, I give you a new commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also should love one another. Yeah, and and that is echoed throughout all four of the Gospels. Um, What is the criteria that Jesus seems to be the most interested in? Well, starting out at the beginning of all the Gospels, he essentially says to his disciples, come follow me. So that's the first key to understanding Jesus. He's interested in a way of life. Well, what is his way of life? Summarized, it's agape love. He says it again and again. He, You mentioned the two great commandments of love God and love your neighbor as yourself, as mentioned by Jesus. This passage from John echoes that same idea of love. Another 
prevalent verse that's very popular comes from Matthew 25, where Jesus says, as you've done to the least of these, you've done to me. Again, he's interested in how we treat one another. He's interested in our way of life. That seems to be the criteria that Jesus is going to use to evaluate faithfulness. Mm -hmm. And just because he emphasizes love doesn't mean that, um, that the rest of those laws are no longer applicable, but all of those laws are seen through this greater law. Yeah, uh, love, I think a way to describe it would be like love is the way that we weigh, weigh how we're going to apply the rest of the laws that we find within Scripture, the, the rest of the commandments that we find in Scripture. It's the way we discern. Yeah. You also dealt with the passage from the book of Acts 4.12, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among mortals by which we must be saved. Yeah, and I mean, I just kept... Uh, finding ways to complicate my sermon and make it very challenging, but that is a challenging verse too. That can be interpreted in an exclusivistic way. I, I don't want to sidestep the fact that there are Bible verses that point in this camp, that point towards this direction of the absolutist approach to religion. Um, but again, there's an alternative to understanding this verse than just Jesus is the only way to heaven, and that is when we put it into context and we understand that the 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 big show in town of the first century context was the Roman Empire. And with that understanding in mind, the Roman emperor, um, they used language for the emperor that is very similar to what we see in this verse, that there was salvation in no other person but Caesar. And uh, there's no other name under heaven whereby we must be saved. And that is for Caesar. And so here come along the Christians saying, well, no, it's not Caesar. Jesus embodies our way of life. Jesus embodies what it means to live faithfully for God. I just throw this out as an alternative way of thinking about these passages. Yeah, I mean, they borrowed the language of the Romans to draw the contrast between Jesus and the emperor. Yeah, um, and to miss that context, as I've said along the way, context is king. To miss that context is really to to miss the bigger meaning of a passage of Scripture from wherever it may come. We really don't understand it until we know the story around it, until we understand what's going on in the world in which it's written. Okay, the three big camps, that was the exclusivistic camp. The second one is the pluralistic camp. So, yeah, um, exclusivistic would say there's one way to God, and that's one particular religion. The pluralistic camp is on the complete other side of that uh, spectrum. It's, it's basically like there are multiple viable ways to experiencing God. Um, so a pluralistic person could say like, in a sense, we're only using different names for the same thing um, is a way that some people would describe a pluralistic worldview. And while I can appreciate the spirit of what they're trying to do there, I think one of the challenges for the pluralistic view is that, well, we don't always mean the same thing when we're talking about different religions. Um, a person from a Hindu background is not going to necessarily mean the same thing as a person from the Christian background. And and to, to simply say, hey, we're just using different words for the same reality doesn't really honor the traditions in and of themselves. So again, so while I'll, I can appreciate the pluralistic worldview, uh, I struggle because we're trying to, in some sense, if we're not careful, we're trying to put words into people's mouths that they they don't necessarily mean. At the same time, um, one of the questions I have for a pluralistic worldview, the pluralistic approach is like, so if they're all kind of like valid paths to God, and I'm not saying every pluralistic person is going to say this, but 
you know, just to the extreme, if, if all paths, though, are, are going to lead to God, then what gives us the foundation to stand on in terms of when we say, well, that's absolutely right, or that's absolutely wrong? I mean, is it all just relative? I think that's one of the big questions that a pluralistic thinker has to kind of hash out and, and explain. You did demonstrate this point of view uh, in an interesting way, I thought, when you talked about the three blind men encountering the elephant. Yeah, I used a story. I, I'm pretty sure it comes from the Hindu tradition, actually. Uh, uh, the story goes, there's three blind men walking down a path, and they come upon an elephant, and the first one gets a hold of the elephant's trunk, and he says, hey, guys, I've, I found a vine. And then the next one says, well, no, it's not a vine at all. The, the next guy has a hold of the elephant's ear. He said, it's clearly a leaf. And then the final guy says, um, well, it's not a leaf or a vine either. Um, he has a hold of the elephant's leg. He says, I've got a tree. Um, a pluralistic approach would say they all had their own unique experiences, but yet they were essentially um, in contact with the same thing. Right. All right. Very good. Okay, so that is the pluralistic, the, uh, and that's on the one extreme. On the other is the exclusivistic. And then uh, down the middle, the inclusivist. And um, it's interesting. I mean, if you, uh, if you call yourself a, a centrist or, or a moderate, you know, people will accuse you of being sort of wishy-washy. But I find that yeah, that's not the case at all. That's really the place to be. And so uh, let's let you define the, in, the inclusivist when it comes to these three buckets. Well, first I'll say there's, not, there's nothing like being in the middle. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, yeah. it's hard to articulate. And, and quite honestly, as I went through the sermon, I was like, it was hard to put into words the different nuances of these camps. But when it comes to the inclusivistic Christian, um, essentially what that camp is saying is that the most powerful force in the universe is the love of God as we see it in Christ. And so what does that mean? Well, it, it means that there is a possibility of people embodying a relationship with God outside the Christian camp. The inclusivistic person would say, while they believe that Jesus reveals the heart of God that lives within the heart of each of us, and that Jesus is absolutely the truth in the sense that he embodies what God is all about, they have an opening for those that are outside the Christian camp. And so um, it's kind of like this middle ground. There is an absolute, um, but it's not quite as narrow as the exclusivistic can't, uh, thinker um, would, would use that terminology. Um, some of the critiques of the inclusivistic camp would be like, um, I've heard people say, well, essentially all that group of people are, are suggesting is that you just be nice and you go to heaven. You know, it's it's just be good and you go to heaven. That's that's the problem with the inclusivistic camp. They would say, well, I, I don't think that's a completely fair way to describe this group. Essentially, what they're saying is like love is the fruit of one's relationship with God. So love is the manifestation of what happens when one truly is in tune with God. And so it's not like, one is just being good under their own efforts and doing it through their own strength. It's the result of one's really real encounter with God's presence. Um, I think that's one of the, the big critiques of the in inclusivistic camp. Mm -hmm. You quoted John Wesley, and you almost always do. If we cannot all think alike, uh, can we not all love alike? Yeah, I think that really articulates the spirit of this, this group now. To be fair, I think Wesley said that to a Roman Catholic, but it does communicate something, I think, overall that he believed because 
he said similar things for people that were outside the Christian camp, like folks from a Jewish background or a Muslim background as well. You said we all have a lens and, and Christ is our lens and that we see Christ in the Old Testament scriptures and Amy Jill Levine said that same thing. Um, and as a Jew, she says it's okay for Christians to see Jesus, uh, see the Old Testament through Jesus' eyes and see Jesus uh, in the Old Testament, even though she might not. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's a fair way uh, to describe the, the difference. A, a Christian reads the scriptures, in this case, the Hebrew Bible, they're looking for manifestations of Christ. And reading the scriptures is our primary discipline for helping us to shape our way of finding Christ. Um, just as um, when we look at another person, we're asking the question, where do I see Christ in that person as well? Um, I, I love that way of thinking about scripture. I, I go to scripture looking for Christ, just like I go to the pages of my own life and the people in my life. Where where do I see the presence of Christ, the love of Christ manifesting in this person. And when I see it, I celebrate it. All right. Um, you quoted Adam Hamilton and his book on understanding uh, the Bible. And, um, you know, Hamilton, he, he's the pastor of the largest United Methodist Church in the country. He, uh, he represents the church in a lot of arenas, and so he's well-known. And, um, you know, he was criticized for this uh, three-bucket approach that he, that he used. And he's talking about how do we receive all of Scripture? And we've been talking about how there's a priority on loving God and, and loving neighbor, and that's, a, that's another filter and another lens that we use. And this was his way of sorting out those Scriptures that pass that test and, and those that don't. And um, you said that he has uh, the first bucket is the largest bucket, and, and this is the bucket that has the Scriptures that truly do extol the love of God. And you talked about uh, Exodus and the Exodus story where God heard the cries of the people, which you said could be translated, or I heard the pain of the people. They weren't crying out to God, and God responded. God saw their pain, and he was the first mover there. We call that prevenient grace. Yeah, it, I did not know that translation of that particular story in Exodus until recently, but I just thought it was so beautiful because I believe it reflects so vividly the way Christ's love works. Christ's love, uh, God's love, responds to our pain even before we go looking for God. And I think that's the beauty of that interpretation of when the people cried out in the story of Exodus. But of course, there's multitude, a multitude of other passages in the Hebrew Scriptures that reflect a Christ-like love. Um, you know, um, an another one would be the the verses that talk about the treatment of immigrants or, or aliens in our midst. I love those passages um, where it says, remember, uh, it says to the people of Israel, remember that you were once aliens and remember you were once foreigners and therefore you need to remember to treat other people accordingly. I Clearly that reflects Christ-like love and we can go on and on about other examples, but they're all over the place when it comes to Hebrew scriptures. That's bucket number one uh, from Adam Hamilton. Uh, bucket number two are those scriptures from the Old Testament that are culturally conditioned. For instance, the ceremonial and, and ritual laws, 613 laws, and then there are laws on top of those laws. And you, like me, when I was preaching on the Old Testament, uh, called up Rabbi Gary Mazo just for some input, and you did this too along these lines. Yeah, I, I was just curious um, from a Jewish perspective. I said, Rabbi Gary, what do you do with the 613 commandments? And 
basically what Rabbi Gary said is you make your best educated uh, response to the different passages. And essentially what Rabbi Gary said was that, you know, there's going to be some commandments in the Hebrew scriptures that many Jewish people are not going to adhere to today. And the tradition he's a part of within Judaism says, that's okay. That's okay. Um, much like the approach that Hamilton's talking about, that there are some passages in the scriptures that were reflective of the culture and the time in which they are written. But of course, we don't necessarily apply those in our context now. Which brings us to the third bucket. And these are those scriptures from the Old Testament that just simply do not refre- reflect Christ-like love. And again, you could name multiple, but you cited Deuteronomy 21, 18 to 21. If someone has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey his father and mother, who does not heed them when they discipline him, then his father and his mother shall take hold of him and bring him out to the elders of his town at the gate of that place. They shall say to that uh, to the elders of the town, this son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey us. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all of the men of the town shall stone him to death. So you shall purge the evil from your midst, and all Israel will hear and be afraid. Yeah, that's a that's an uplifting passage. <laughs> um, and every time I read that particular passage, I always joke, like, I'm glad my parents were not literalists, because if they were, um, my brother and I probably wouldn't have made it to kindergarten, because we would have gotten stoned to death for being rebellious sons and not listening to our parents always, and that kind of thing. Um, the bigger point being is... Stoning a child to death for being disobedient to their parents does not reflect Christ's love. And and we don't necessarily live into that now. And so that would go in that third bucket of, um, yeah, it's in there, but we don't necessarily follow it. I would also say, though, um, there are passages in the Hebrew Scripture that don't necessarily reflect Christ-like love. But there's also passages in the New Testament that don't necessarily reflect Christ-like love. And in my sermon, I noted a couple of those passages. Um, one of the ones I'll mention is women in ministry and women speaking in the church. Um, Paul notes towards the end of 1 Corinthians, you know, for a woman not to speak in the church, and he even says this is his instruction to all congregations. And he says, uh, essentially, a, a woman should be subordinate to a man, as does the law say that that's what they should do. We don't follow that commandment. We don't necessarily live in that as United Methodist. Um, as United Methodists, we believe men and women are equal, and therefore equal, equally can be called by God and equally speak up within the church and be leaders within the church. Um, there are some in the Christian tradition that don't necessarily follow that path, but that's who we are as United Methodists because we believe that's the Christ-like path. Now, that's a New Testament passage that we're not necessarily following, and we've discerned our way through that as well. Even from the lips of Jesus himself in the, in the Gospel of Matthew and his teaching on divorce, which is a very strict stance on divorce, which we do not apply. No. Um, and the commandment, you know, in the Gospels where Jesus says basically you, you cannot get a divorce unless for the reason of sexual unfaithfulness. Um, we don't necessarily follow that today either. Which I know now we're starting to get into that problematic category because you hear people say, well, I'm just a red-letter Christian. Well, if we're just going to be a red-letter Christian, then that means we have to obey every single commandment that we see in the Gospels. What do we do with the one on divorce? 
Well, um, the way that United Methodists, we've interpreted that is that there is more than one way to walk out of a marriage than just sexual unfaithfulness. People can walk out of a marriage for a multitude of other reasons and not honor the covenant they made with their partner, in which cases there are times in which a divorce is the, I hate to say it this way, but the most healthy way forward. Well, and there are pastors who are doing wonderful work in churches who, at some point in history, if they'd gotten divorced, it would have eliminated them from the ministry. And today we have divorced pastors who are awesome. Yeah, my my grandfather, who was a United Methodist minister, um, was a pastor during a time in which the divorce conversation was a lot more heated. Um, he started ministry in the 60s and and was a, a clergy person in the United Methodist Church up through really the early 2000s. And anyway, he tells a story of he did a marriage for a couple that were getting remarried. And somebody came to his office and said, how do you, how do you believe that's okay based upon this passage of Scripture? And my grandfather's response was, that's simple, it's forgiveness. There's nothing else to talk about. It's forgiveness. Um, and, and sometimes things don't work out. And sometimes we need a fresh start. Mm-hmm. And certainly we believe ultimately that is Christ-like love, that redemption is always a possibility. We can always move forward and begin again. Yeah. Pastor Andy, we're going a little bit over, but uh, this story that you finished your sermon on is too good to leave out. And so I'll ask you to repeat that story about uh, what happened to you in 2019 when the church, the denomination was in turmoil and you decided that you needed uh, a retreat and went to Ferdinand for that. Yeah, I was struggling with my faith at that time as many United Methodist clergy and many United Methodists were struggling at that time. Our denomination um, was very much divided and continues to be divided in some ways over the question of human sexuality and I was just really wrestling with, like, where do I fit in this denomination now? Where do I fit as a pastor now? And so I went away to pray, and I went to Ferdinand and uh, spent some time praying at the monastery there. So it was me, United Methodist Pastor Andy, with a bunch of nuns. And uh, so the thing about the nuns is that they pray in the morning, at noon, at night, and I started to go ahead and, and worship with them. And and so as I sat down for those worship services, what was interesting is one of the nuns came and sat with me and got the book out, made sure I knew where to turn to the right page and made sure I knew what I was doing. And that continued for a few days. Well, finally on Friday, the monk from St. Mindred came over and presided over the Eucharist. And uh, everyone got up to go forward to receive communion. And I sat there because, of course, I was, I was not Catholic. And, and that same nun came back to me and says, um, you can go. And I say, well, I'm not Catholic. She says, oh, we know you're not Catholic. You can go. And for me, that was just this, this moment that solidified what it meant for me to embody and say yes and live faithfully for Christ's love. We seek to include. We seek to make sure that people aren't lost in the sense that that we try hard to, to make sure that they understand what's happening and going on within the worship service or whatever we're talking about. We want to make sure that people are included and hospitable. Uh, that, that nun, for me, became Christ in a sense because she embodied Christ-like love. And well, I came away from that thinking, I, I know what my mission is as a pastor and as a Christian. Now that, that nun did it that day, yeah. 
in that worship service. Yeah. We said we wanted to make sure that we came back to pastoral theology, and, and, and there it is right there. Yeah, that's, to me, that's religion done best. Uh, it's, that's the way Jesus lived his life. He constantly walked over the cultural customs and the expectations of the time in the name of welcoming love, and that's what we're called to be as Christ followers today. All right, article number seven this Sunday, an easy one. Here, here's the low-hanging fruit for you, Andy, of original or birth sin. Here's a paragraph that describes this. Original sin standeth not in the following of Adam, as the Pelagians do vainly talk, but is the corruption of the nature of every man that naturally is engendered of the offspring of Adam, whereby man is very far gone from original righteousness and of his own nature inclined to evil, and that continually. Yeah, that's another light topic, like you said, Randy. And every week I get ready to preach the next sermon. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is so difficult. But this is a very, very foundational paragraph in our Articles of Religion. And the reason it's foundational is because it names the problem so that we can understand what the solution is. And the problem, of course, is sin. And the solution, of course, we believe as Christians is salvation And what this does is it sets the stage for how we understand what salvation is and what it looks like in a person's life. We can't really understand that until we understand what we mean as Christians when we use the word sin. All right, we're not going to ask you to unpack it now, but we will look forward to that sermon. And so we want to thank you uh, for listening. We appreciate it. And uh, have a great week, and we will see you next week. This has been the Pastor Podcast with Randy and Andy. You are welcome to join us at Methodist Temple in person or online. Methodist Temple is at 2109 Lincoln Avenue in Evansville, Indiana. Our traditional Sunday morning worship service is at 830 with our contemporary service at 11. Log on to our website at methodisttemple.church. We see Christ in you.